Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This concludes the part of the summit open for media, so I kindly ask the media to leave the room, please. I'm Julia Chastley in New York, and you've been watching the beginning of the Bucharest 9 meeting in Warsaw there with President Biden. To prevent any future eastward expansion, to prevent Ukraine from ever joining NATO, what we see here is a repudiation again of those demands, another sign uh, that Russia's goals in this conflict are not coming to pass, Julia. No, and your point about the spending, I think, is critically important too. We spoke to the president of Lithuania earlier this week, who, of course, is going to host those NATO meetings later on this year. And he said he wants that 2% of GDP spending promise or target for these NATO nations to be considered a floor, not a ceiling in this case. So he's certainly pushing for higher defence budgets uh, in particular, as far as NATO is concerned as well. But the other thing as well is that many of these nations have also provided support to displaced Ukrainians too. So it's actually not just about support and, and aid for Ukraine itself, it's about providing support to, to those Ukrainians that have had to flee to, to nations around, like many of the, the leaders know very well here. Yeah, I think Poland in particular, which mm. of course has hosted President Biden and continues to host these meetings, has been at the forefront of that. President Biden witnessed that uh, himself when he went to Poland uh, in March of last year. That, as you say, strains budgets on top of uh, the military aid and humanitarian aid that countries are providing to Ukraine. And on that military aid, Julia, we are as well at a point where we're seeing the level of military equipment, ammunition and all of that, that this conflict is burning through really uh, up the ante when it comes to these countries and what they can provide. This is, in the words of the NATO Secretary General, and now a battle of logistics. It's not just about political will to provide it. They have to increase production to be able to provide it. So these are serious economic questions as well as political questions they're facing. Yes, couldn't agree more. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for your report there. Now, moments ago, Russian President Vladimir Putin appeared at a concert in Moscow. Take a listen to what he had to say. I have just uh, been meeting the top military leadership and I heard from them that right now there is a battle going on on our historic frontiers for our people. And if this battle is waged by the same courageous soldiers as those standing next to us here, they are fighting heroically, courageously, bravely. We are proud of them. Meanwhile, former Russian President Dmitry Medvedev says Russia will, quote, disappear if it stops what Moscow calls this special military operation. Fred Polankin joins us now from Moscow. Fred, uh, we were expecting to hear more of the same, I think, from President Putin, and we certainly did. And clearly the audience there and the stages mm. for the domestic audience, fascinating comments. And I believe that was Telegram, a social media channel that, that the former president, Medvedev, made those comments about the idea of, of Russia disappearing should this operation or war, let's call it that, um, ends. 
Yeah, and, and that's something that we heard from Vladimir Putin yesterday in his speech as well. I think that's sort of the message that's being put out there right now by the Kremlin, also by a lot of other people who are in power in Russia and also political commentators. In fact, I spoke to a political commentator, a pretty high-level one, um, just a couple of days ago, and he also said that Russians, or at least the Russian leadership, really views this as something of a battle for survival of Russia. Um, obviously, one of the things that Vladimir Putin said yesterday in his major speech is that he felt that it was the West that was infringing on Russia and essentially wanted the disintegration of Russia. And late last night, after Vladimir Putin's initial speech, I actually got a message from the Kremlin spokesman, from Dmitry Peskov, commenting on President Biden's speech, of course, in Warsaw, Poland, also last night. And he said that he believes that the U.S.'s secret agenda is the disintegration of Russia as well, and it's simply something that's not being spoken out loud. So it's certainly a message that's being put out there on various levels here in this country. And once again, also Vladimir Putin, as we see on our screens right now, they're in Luzhniki Stadium in central Moscow, obviously trying to rally that crowd not having much trouble rallying that crowd, because as you can see, they did have those patriotic symbols uh, out uh, as well. But it's definitely seen as something that's very important to the Russian leader and in general to the Russian leadership. Uh, I was actually down there before that event took place just to sort of check out what was going on. And there were a lot of people who were coming towards that stadium, a lot of them obviously with pro-Russian, with patriotic memorabilia on them. So you can really see how important it is to the Russian leadership to portray that message. Of course, all of this coming a day after uh, Vladimir Putin's address to the Federal Assembly, which is the key speech that Vladimir Putin holds uh, every year. And then also coming on the eve of Defenders of the Fatherland Day here in Russia. It's obviously a very important uh, event here as well. And this uh, concert that we're seeing, that sort of uh, uh, rallying cry that is going on there in that stadium is actually technically also part of the events around Defenders of the Fatherland Day. But as we can see now, obviously, with what Russia calls its special military operation going on in Ukraine, it certainly has taken on a whole different meaning and has been elevated to a whole nother level, Julia. Mm. Fred Plotkin, thank you so much for that. All right. High profile meetings also taking place in Moscow too. Russian President Vladimir Putin welcoming China's top diplomat Wang Yi in the Kremlin. International relations today are complex. They have not improved um, after the collapse of the bipolar system. On the contrary, they have become uh, more tense. And uh, in this regard, cooperation between Russia and the Chinese People's Republic um, on the international arena are very important for the stabilization of the international situations, as we have said many times. And Mark Stewart joins us now with more. Mark, I always look at the pictures, the photo opportunities in this case. And when you look at uh, Wang Yi with um, the foreign minister of, of Russia, it looked very genial. I think that's what um, the best word I can use in this case. And Wang Yi described the relationship as solid as a rock. <laughs> Solid as a rock and mature. I mean, as you know, Julia, it's not as if Russia and China haven't had a relationship before. We're very well aware of the economic ties between the two nations, especially during the Ukraine war. We have seen China be a top customer of Russian oil and gas and coal. And we've seen Russia buy Chinese phones and cars because many Western com uh, companies have been basically excluded from the marketplace. But now we are seeing this very determined effort to 
create, at least to the world, send a message that there is a diplomatic relationship between these two nations, almost to the extent, as we have seen with NATO and the EU. Um, as you mentioned, uh, Wang Yi used this phrase, solid as a rock. And he, he also, in the face-to-face -face meeting today with Vladimir Putin, talked about the fact that this alliance is not necessarily to exclude the world, but it's to show that these two nations can work together. Take a listen to Wang Yi from earlier today. We want to emphasize here that the comprehensive strategic partnership between China and Russia never targets a third country. Hence, it won't be affected by any interferences or instigation from a third country. We certainly won't bow to any threats or pressure. You know, Julia, you brought up the optics of all of this, the photo op, if you will, with Vladimir Putin and Wang Yi. That is powerful within itself, but we could perhaps see even a bigger moment because it seems that the pathway is cleared now for a face-to-face -face meeting with Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping perhaps as early as this spring. We'll have to see, Julia. Absolutely. And uh, to your point as well, these optics matter. The messaging matters. Mark Stewart, thank you for that. Okay, let's head to South Korea now, where potential nuclear-capable missile launches are on the minds of leaders. North Korea is now believed to be capable of sending its ICBMs further than ever before. That, according to South Korean military intelligence. And Paula Hancock joins us now from Seoul. Paula, and I believe you've been speaking to South Korea's foreign minister to get their take on these concerns. That's right, yes. I spoke to, uh, to Park Jin, the foreign minister here in South Korea, earlier today and asked him about uh, what North Korea has been doing in just the last few weeks. An ICBM launch, a military parade threatening to turn the Pacific Ocean into a firing range. And uh, Minister Park said that North Korea is clearly on the wrong path, that South Korea is never going to accept a nuclear North Korea. Uh, also pointing out that the threats that they have given that they are going to develop and deploy tactical nuclear weapons presents a very clear and present danger to South Korea. So I asked him specifically about Kim Jong-un's nuclear ambitions. He may not uh, voluntarily uh, renounce nuclear weapons, but the important thing is that we have to create an environment where North Korea has no choice but to come back to the negotiation table. Now, there's also a growing voice here in South Korea for, for South Korea to have its own nuclear weapons program. But that was dismissed by the foreign minister. He said that it is neither reliable nor viable, saying that U.S. extended deterrence is really the only way that they can deal with North Korea, saying that Seoul is currently in discussions with Washington into how uh, to, to strengthen that extended deterrence. Talking uh, about this week, for example, there is a nuclear tabletop drill that is happening between the US and South Korean troops in the Pentagon saying more collaboration like that is what would strengthen that deterrence. Now, he also spoke about Ukraine, about the war in Ukraine, saying that he believes Pyongyang is taking a lesson from that war, saying that it is emboldening them to act this way and they are taking advantage of the fact that the world's attention is elsewhere. And then finally, he also spoke about Taiwan and China's uh, desire to, uh, to take control 
of uh, of the island also not uh, uh, not not ruling out the possibility of using force and he made a direct connection with taiwan we are opposed to unilateral change of status quo by force uh, so in that sense uh, we will make sure that if something happens on the Taiwan Strait, we have to maintain peace and stability on the Korean Peninsula because it will have a direct impact uh, on our country. Now, the main message when it did come to North Korea was that there was an intention to talk if North Korea was willing. They wanted uh, to bring them back to the negotiating table uh, in, in tandem with the United States as well, using deterrence to try and do so. But when I did ask him whether or not there were any back channels that were open at the moment, whether there were any talks at all, he said that there were not. Julia? Hmm. The best way to bring leaders like this to the negotiating table, and that's the, the key tie between all the stories I think we've covered on the show so far. Paula Hancocks, thank you so much for that. Okay, straight ahead. Counting the economic cost of the war in Ukraine, the nation's finance minister joins us next as he negotiates further outside help. We'll be right back. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. After one year of war, the economic cost to Ukraine continues to mount. Since the Russian invasion began, Ukraine's economy has seen a 30% decline. Average inflation last year was around 28%. The unemployment rate hit 30%. And as bad as all that sounds, there were, though, also important signs of economic resilience. According to the finance ministry, 90%, that's 9-0, businesses are still functioning. And of course, the financial system remains fully operational with government obligations like wages and pensions fully met. Yet Ukraine remains reliant on outside help, even with major support from the EU and the United States this year. The government may still need around $10 billion more to meet its financial needs. And the hope is that the International Monetary Fund will also step in to provide further support. Sergei Marchenko is Ukraine's finance minister and he joins us now. Finance minister, thank you so much for joining us. We certainly appreciate your time. Um, there's clearly much to discuss. I do want to start, if you don't mind, with the International Monetary Fund. You tweeted a picture of you meeting with the managing director, who we know very well on this show. Can I ask how those talks are going and, and what information you can give us about timing? Thank you very much for inviting me to be with you. Uh, yes, uh, this week we uh, were happy to meet uh, managing director in Ukraine, in Kyiv. Uh, we uh, had very productive discussions with her and her team. And previously, in uh, last week, uh, we were in Warsaw. We had mission in Warsaw and uh, we discussed how uh, we execute our monetary board program, which can be prerequisite, uh, which can pave the way for future possible future UCT program. So now we see that uh, our relationship is uh, quite stable and we, we are moving in a direction of uh, possible uh, full-fledged program with IMF. I mean, the managing director in the IMF said this weekend they complimented you on, on maintaining a level of stability, I think, in the financial sector in particular, against all odds. Do you have a sense of, of what conditions might be attached to an IMF program and how quickly 
they can give you money because you need more money this year or you expect to need more money? Yes, we still uh, need an amount of uh, around 10 billion US dollars to cover our budget needs for this year, as well as we need uh, to start process of reconstruction of our economy. And uh, you mentioned condi conditions. We are ready to fulfill all necessary requirements and conditions to be able to uh, move on with program. Uh, first of all, uh, our conditions can include uh, necessary measures to stabilize our macroeconomic situation, uh, create necessary environment for fiscal stability, for monetary stability, and then we can uh, start uh, discussing measures which can uh, contain anti-corruption measures as well as uh, measurement, measurement to increase our government capacity to execute as and well as other, other management. But um, the most important uh, uh, conditionalities is how uh, better structured and how better uh, prepare us for macroeconomic stability. Of course. And, and very quickly, because you mentioned a number of, of things there and you're saying, I think, we'll fulfill all obligations. How soon? Are, are we talking days for this programme to be agreed? Weeks? Um, we agreed that we will uh, start discussing new programme within weeks. So okay. I believe that the uh, board of uh, directors of IMF can support uh, management and staff and we can start this negotiation rather sooner than later. And if there is still a gap, as we've described it, your, your estimate for a budget deficits, $38 billion this year, as we've mentioned, a huge chunk of that coming from financial support from the EU and from the United States. Um, is the other option more war bonds? Because I know you are issuing debt on a weekly basis. It's just incredibly expensive. Yes, uh, without uh, any doubt, it's one of the most important sources to uh, cover our military expenses because we can cover our military expenses only through our revenues uh, raised by taxation or through the wartime bonds. Uh, we managed to attract uh, 6 billion US dollars uh, last year through war bonds. This year, we also uh, did our best and uh, try to convince markets that uh, it was to believe for government of, of Ukraine. And it, of course, it's internal market. Uh, of course, the price is uh, high due to the inflation, due to the high level of basic rate of National Bank of Ukraine. But uh, we, uh, we try to attract it and we try to uh, get our uh, um, possible uh, sources uh, uh, for bonds uh, to, to cover our military expenses. Yeah, I mean, I was looking at it, um, sort of out to, to one-year debt, um, around 18%, I believe, the interest rate, just to give my viewers an understanding of why getting international support is so important for you because it's so expensive to, to issue war bonds. Um, I think what, and I know it's not your department, but in addition to the budget deficit, there's an estimate from the government of $17 billion this year just for infrastructure repairs. 
Can you give us an estimate of what we're looking at now? I mean, the last time you and I spoke, I think it was we were talking $500 billion. Some estimates were saying a trillion dollars to ultimately repair what's been damaged in this war. Uh, Finance Minister, it's unimaginable, the scale of this. Yes, uh, uh, the scale of damages which were done by uh, Russia aggression is uh, uh, very huge and uh, now we expect in the World Bank uh, um, rapid damage and needs assessment report uh, which uh, can assess uh, on the 1st of January of 2023 uh, the recent damages and uh, calculations they necessary to provide for us and for our partners how much does it cost for Ukraine uh, this war what our damages, what our necessary amount of money to attract for repayments, for uh, first uh, niche repayments or later repayments. Uh, and uh, you mentioned 17 billion, it's uh, the amount of money which is necessary to cover our existing needs, uh, needs for this year. It uh, also depends on our capacity to absorb this money. That's why this amount is uh, below the level of damages. So we uh, really understand how much uh, necessary for us, but uh, 17 billion is that amount is so crucial to get our economy running for 2023. I know, and it's a moving target. Um, Finance Minister, one of the other things that I know is very important to you, um, you're demanding that Russia be blacklisted by the Financial Action Task Force FATFA, it's known as. And it's to, I know in your mind, prevent Russia from circumventing the sanctions that are already in place. How confident are you that the 38 nations, I believe, that that make up this body are willing to blacklist Russia? There's only three other countries, I believe. Uh, We try to do all necessary steps to prevent Russia use any possible ways to finance war campaign. So that's why for us uh, blacklisting Russia is one of the measures which can help us to win this war as soon as later. And we uh, prepared the list of arguments for our partners, for countries which support Ukraine, why Russia should be blacklisted. And we believe that these arguments can be used as uh, uh, prerequisite uh, arguments for uh, blacklist in Russia, because uh, we really believe that it helped us uh, to prevent uh, further uh, war campaign and to build the necessary environment for uh, further counteroffensive operation of Ukraine armed forces and uh, for a win of Ukraine. We'll continue to follow that and see what outcome comes. Um, Finance Minister Marchenko, the last time you and I spoke, you were living at the Finance Ministry. You were living apart from your family, from your wife and children. I believe now you've moved back home, which is a good thing. But just one year after this war, just your observations of, of what life's like today and what it meant that President Biden came to Kyiv this week to mark the anniversary? 
Good question, because, uh, you know, um, to understand that we are living in a very different environment, uh, I, we can only realize when uh, we can travel or visit business trip for other countries. For example, last week I was in Warsaw. It takes me 24 hours to uh, to get accustomed for a peaceful environment, to understand that lighting in the streets is uh, something natural, uh, because uh, we are living and we not um, understand how damaging for our uh, for our lives, for our uh, interest is uh, as this war. That's why for us the better and faster winning campaign, the the better because it's help our children uh, to live in a peaceful country to have prosperity, to have future. So we uh, try to do our best. We try to use every particular moment. And thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to attract attention for Ukraine, to get us on radar, on focus, to help us to attract necessary finances, to attract necessary military equipment, to keep running country, to, to help us to win this war. Yeah, uh, Finance Minister, you said something recently which caught my attention and you said um, the nations lost more than, than can be calculated in money, despite the conversation about money that we've just had. And your children are, are losing years, you've lost years, and it's going to take years to recover from this. And I think um, we all need to be aware of that. I thank you for your time. So thank you. And hopefully we'll speak again soon. And fingers crossed to talk about an IMF deal as well. Ukraine's finance minister there. Great to chat to you, sir. Thank you. Stay with First Move. More to come. Welcome back to First Move. At least 10 people have died following an Israeli military operation in the West Bank, according to Palestinian officials. They said two Islamic Jihad commanders were among those killed and more than 100 people were injured. Israeli authorities say they were targeting suspects who were, quote, planning attacks in the immediate future. Hadas Gold is in Jerusalem for us. Hadas, I guess that accounts for the fact that this took place in daylight, which is rare. What more can you tell us? Yeah, normally when the Israeli military carries out these raids, which have become more common in the past year or so, they do so in the dark of night or at dawn hours, not in the middle of the day. So that goes to show you that it's unusual, goes to show you perhaps why the Israeli military says that they went after uh, these people with intelligence, showing that there was some sort of immediate attack. We're also hearing from them that they believe one of those that they killed was responsible for the shooting death of an Israeli soldier a few months ago. And what we're learning from some of the militant groups that some of their their members and commanders were among those killed. But just the numbers, the sheer scale of the numbers of killed and injured is very unusual, and it's just huge. I mean, at least 10 killed. We know of something like 100 injured by the Palestinian Ministry of Health says live ammunition. So we have to keep in mind that the death count may go up. This may end up being one of, if not the deadliest days in the West Bank, definitely potentially this year, if not in even further years. And what's even 
already been a very deadly and violent year so far. We know of, as I said, at least 10 injured. And when you look at sort of the breakdown, people are asking, you know, are the civilians caught up in this as well? Uh, so far, we do know that some militant groups have claimed some of those killed as their members. But we're looking at some of the ages. And there are some people in their 60s and 70s killed, as well as a 16-year-old boy, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health. We're still working out exactly the details of the situation. We're still getting briefed by the Israeli military, but it's been a very violent year already so far here. It's only February. The Palestinian Ministry of Health saying something like 61 Palestinians have been killed. Meanwhile, 11 Israelis have been killed. This cycle of violence just seemingly continuing. Now, what's also important to note about today is that the Islamic Jihad said that two of their commanders were killed. And the Islamic Jihad in Gaza, uh, you have to keep in mind that they do have a foothold in Gaza and that we may very well get a response from Gaza tonight, perhaps in the form of rockets. And keep in mind, it was just in August that there was that brief sort of two, three day escalation, rockets fired and Israeli military responding with airstrikes. And so there is a very good chance that there may be that sort of escalation potentially in the next couple of hours where uh, Islamic Jihad militants may fire rockets. We're hearing from the armed factions in Gaza. They said essentially that their patience is running out. So we may see that sort of escalation coming. As we've been noting for so many days now, there have been so many violent incidences between Israelis and Palestinians. The ground here has been very ripe for some time for some sort of escalation. And then just take a look at the calendar and look what's coming. Ramadan and Passover are once again overlapping. That will likely bring that tension and potentially even more escalation here to Jerusalem, to the holy sites. Julia. Yeah, I know. And you'll stay across any further developments and bring them to us. How does goal? Thank you so much for that report. Okay, in the meantime, let me give you a quick look at what we're seeing across U.S. stock markets. Wall Street is currently higher. The Nasdaq outperforming their stocks, trying to bounce after Tuesday's painful 2% slump across the board. Investors nervous, I think, as U.S. bond yields rise due to fears of more aggressive central bank action. And, of course, yesterday, a disappointing outlook from retailers Walmart and Home Depot weighing on broader sentiment, too. Now, we discussed this yesterday on the show, and it is a Supreme Court showdown which could upend the world of social media as we know it. In two separate cases, the families of two terror attack victims claim that social media companies have helped terror groups in violation of U.S. law and should be held responsible. Yesterday on the program, we heard from the family of Nomi Gonzalez, who was killed in an ISIS attack on Paris in 2015. The justices will hear arguments in the second day of their case against Google, and a decision could impact big tech companies that are currently using laws like Section 230 to shield themselves from user lawsuits. Our justice correspondent, Jessica Schneider, joins us now. Jessica, um, it's complicated, and there are two cases. There's the Google case and there's the Twitter case. I think you and I accurately predict yesterday that um, the U.S. Supreme Court was going to be challenged with this. And mm. I think they sort of honestly admitted that they were pretty clueless yesterday, not at interpreting the law, but just understanding, I think, the implications of any change. That's exactly right, Julia. I mean, they were very cognizant that their ruling could really upend the way the Internet is run. And because of that, the Supreme Court, they're wading into these two big cases with caution because they could radically change everything about social media and the internet. So they heard that case yesterday about whether YouTube could be held responsible for the death of that 23-year-old American student in Paris in 2015 during the ISIS terrorist attacks all across the city. 
And they say that this family says that YouTube not only allowed ISIS videos to be posted on their site, but also that YouTube recommended those videos to certain viewers. And the family says it's because of that specific action of recommending videos. They say that should wipe away any protections that social media currently has. The court, though, they seemed very hesitant to step in here and make changes to the way the Internet works. They said they're really not the experts and maybe Congress should really be the ones making any changes. Here's Justice Elena Kagan saying just that. Every other industry has to internalize the costs of his conduct. Why is it that the tech industry gets a pass? A little bit unclear. On the other hand, I mean, we're a court. We really don't know about these things. You know, these are not like the nine greatest experts on the Internet. Isn't that something for Congress to do, not the court? And that was really the sentiment throughout this almost three hours of arguments. The justices really wrestling with the implications any of their decisions might have. And the justices also warned that if they wiped away protections for social media companies like under Section 230, it would create possibly this wave of lawsuits and would really create chaos online. So today, there's another related case. It takes a broader look at the responsibility of big tech. This is a case that is also being brought by families of terror victims. They're saying more broadly that social media companies assisted ISIS by allowing terrorist groups members to post Post their videos and other content online. And they're saying, Julia, that that particularly violates the federal anti-terrorism act right here in the U.S. So it's really taking a more broad argument, whereas yesterday was asking to kind of chip away at the protections of Section 230. This is saying more bluntly that overall tech companies should be responsible for any content posted that promotes terrorism. Julia? Yeah. yeah. And It raises awareness because justices only have to have expertise in the law. Congress, back to you and you have to act. Jessica, we'll see you in five to ten years, unfortunately. (laughs) Thank you so much for that. Okay, and that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. Marketplace Europe is up next and I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.